Thank you for the opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good morning, everyone, uh, both uh, here in the room and via Zoom. Uh, my name is Chris Prentice. I'm president of the American Association of Visually Impaired Attorneys, and we are going to get an update on some uh, the, the latest developments in uh, advocacy. And to introduce our speakers, let me turn it over uh, to Jeff Tom, a number, another member of the American Association of Visually Impaired Attorneys. Jeff? Okay. Thank you, Chris. I'm also wearing my hat as chair of the Advocacy Services Committee. We are jointly sponsoring this event. And I want to, and I'm not going to take a long time to introduce them because they have a lot of things to say that you'll want to hear and you don't really want to hear me. Um, But we do have two outstanding advocacy attorneys today. Um, The first is Matt Handlery. Matt, uh, excuse me, Handley. Um, I'm off to a great start, as you can tell. Uh, Matt um, began working with us as part of the Washington Lawyers Committee. He is now in private practice and uh, has handled a number of cases, um, both for ACB and in the blindness advocacy space. And our other panelist is Stuart Seaborn um, with Disability Rights Advocate. Uh, uh, he uh, has been known to us for a long time in California and, um, and more increasingly with, uh, since DRA has taken a more active role um, on the national scene. Um, He's worked with ACB and many other organizations um, in the blindness and disability advocacy space. So um, we are thrilled to have both of you. I know um, Matt is on his way to Europe tomorrow, right? Matt, isn't that the case? Okay, gentlemen, whichever one of you wants to start. So this is Stuart Seaborn. Thank you. I guess, I, Matt, I can start and then I'll hand it over to you. Uh, I am Managing Director of Litigation at Disability Rights Advocates. We're a national nonprofit legal center. We specialize in systemic and class action litigation. We often consider ourselves the litigation arm of the disability rights movement. We have offices in California where I work, uh, also in New York and Chicago. DRA has worked with ACB countless times over the years, and we have active cases with all of you today, some of which I'm going to talk about. Uh, The first area of law where there's been significant action worth reporting on is accessible absentee voting. And I have to say, before the pandemic, this is an issue that we'd worked on a little bit, and we'd run into some brick walls. Most of our work had been around accessible, accessible voting machines and access to poll sites, uh, and that often did involve the blind community. We had our California Council, the Blind versus County of Alameda case, uh, which focused on maintaining. So at that, in, in that uh, location, there were accessible voting machines. They just weren't maintained very well. And we had our Disabled in Action case in New York City, which was an overall poll site accessibility case. It also involved what they called their BMDs or ballot marking devices that were accessible voting machines, uh, and those were, were sometimes not maintained or sometimes they were blocked uh, for access. And we were fortunate enough to secure precedents where if a public entity like a registrar of voters or a county board of elections was going to make available a private and independent vote, in other words, a secret ballot, it had to make that private and independent vote available to blind voters unless the you know unless they could prove it was some sort of undue burden or fundamental alteration thankfully that has not uh, th- those th- none of those situations have resulted in proof of undue burden or f- fundamental alteration yet and so that was most of our work we you know we had been exploring including with a couple of folks in California the idea of accessible absentee voting uh, but it hadn't been something where we'd had much traction legally We'd also been tracking, we have colleagues who are working on a case in San Mateo, California. And one of the the interesting things about that case was that San Mateo was moving away from voting at poll sites a lot faster than some of the other uh, regions of California. 
And there was a settlement agreement that included some accessible options there. And we thought, well, that, that might be a window. And we started working with advocates, uh, some ACB affiliates. We worked with some folks in Utah and other states. Uh, but we're just kind of in the, you know, the beginning stages of what do we do about this? And we, we knew that there were, you know, there was eventually going to be a movement to allow folks to vote nationally, uh, you know, more, more by, by absentee voting and unfortunately more by paper ballot. Uh, but there wasn't much progress until, lo and behold, uh, you know, March of 2020, and we reached the pandemic. And rapidly, we saw a major shift to absentee voting, uh, partially because the public was starting to realize there was a real danger with COVID to voting in person at poll sites. Often poll sites were crowded, and there wasn't a way to socially distance uh, and so that we saw these rapid moves, often haphazard moves by county boards of elections, by states to absentee voting on a very, very large scale, but mostly by, by paper ballot. And that's really when we started to see some positive, positive movement in this issue. We saw, for example, uh, in Pennsylvania, I don't know if there are advocates on the call from Pennsylvania, there was the Drenth case, uh, which was one of the first to recognize that inaccessible absentee voting systems on, a, on that kind of a scale can violate the ADA. And because it was so fast moving and most people were just focused on temporary or preliminary relief in light of these, these kind of quick moves in the pandemic, they, they really focused on preliminary relief there and it stopped short of permanent uh, accessible absentee remedies. But it was a very good indicator of things to come. And then the, the, our, our office at DRA got involved with uh, the ACB affiliate, the NFB, and Disability Rights New York uh, in a case involving the New York State Board of Elections, the Hernandez case. And this was another kind of positive first step. There, the blind community secured a preliminary injunction and eventually a court-enforceable settlement requiring accessible voting options for absentee voters the problem there, it's not a problem, but it's something that's you know, it's not entirely complete, is that it's, you know, the, what's what's in, in existence now there is it's not a fully electronic accessible option. It's a system that allows for uh, an accessible ballot or to ballot to be read by a screen reader user and to be fillable by a screen reader user. But it stops short of being something that somebody can, you know, get, they can apply for, they can, they can review and vote and then submit fully electronically and accessibly. Uh, and also, there's some uh, ongoing litigation there about how quickly the system can be implemented. Uh, we had some, uh, we actually had an agreement that the system would go into place in June and we're in July and we're not there yet. So that, that's being litigated as we speak. And the other uh, kind of uh, groundbreaking case, probably the most groundbreaking case uh, that, that we were involved in on this issue uh, was in North Carolina, working with uh, ACB affiliates, uh, a strong ACB advocate, Chris Bell. I don't know if Chris is on this call, uh, but that was actually a major shift. And I think that's that case has kind of helped keep us moving in the right direction on this absentee voting issue. Uh, and that was a situation where the uh, one of the, the powerful facts was that the state was already using a, a, a system that applied to voters who are overseas or military voters, uh, often re referred to by its statutory name, UACAVA. Uh, but there was a system that was an accessible online system called Democracy Live that was already in place. And that was a, it's a powerful fact we didn't have in the other cases and allowed uh, us to argue along with, with ACB uh, of, of North Carolina that uh, there really was no uh, additional burden on the state, no additional security risk, because this system, this democracy live system uh, that could apply to blind voters in an accessible way was already in place and being used by folks uh, in the military and folks who were overseas. And that case initially resulted in a preliminary injunction to get the accessible system in place for the November uh, 2021 general election. And I think folks will probably remember, sorry, the November uh, 2020 general election. And folks will, will remember that was uh, kind of a big election here in this country. Uh, and that's, I think that helped motivate the judge in that case as well. And eventually resulted in a permanent injunction secured through uh, what's called a motion for judgment on the pleadings after that preliminary injunction went in, in, into place. Uh, so right now, that's there's there's precedent for a permanent accessible solution coming out of North Carolina that we're hoping to use in other states. 
The final case I wanted to mention on voting is our current litigation in Indiana. I think that's, uh, you know, North Carolina was a very um, kind of straightforward system because there was already an accessible solution in place. It just wasn't being applied to the blind community. Indiana is probably the most restrictive absentee system we have ever seen. Uh, and so it presents a, a great challenge. And we're, we're very fortunate to be working with the ACB affiliate in Indiana, also uh, Indiana Disability Rights on these issues, because there's a lot to tackle. Uh, and first, the first thing they have there, they, they actually have eligibility restrictions on who can vote absentee. You, know, you and I just couldn't show up and vote absentee. You'd have to qualify. Fortunately, most blind and low vision voters in Indiana do qualify through one of the qualification categories, but that's not the end of it. Uh, if you do have a disability, that means you can't use the paper ballot uh, and the kind of the print absentee voting system. They then refer you via statute to what's called the traveling board. And you actually have to make an appointment with this, this kind of state appointed group of, of individuals on this board, have them come into your house and help you vote. Uh, it's definitely not private. It's definitely not independent. Um, and it also has, like any bureaucracy, it has its scheduling issues. So we've had folks who couldn't even vote because they couldn't, they couldn't actually get an appointment uh, or the traveling board missed the appointment. Uh, so that, that's quite a problem. And there's a great, in addition to the, the ACB folks, there's a great community of advocates who helped secure recent legislation to kind of move, move forward from the system and push for, at least on paper, accessible options for absentee voting. But uh, like a lot of state bureaucracies, there's been a, a ton of difficulty in implementation and there's actually nothing in place yet. Uh, and so working with advocates um, from ACB uh, and, and Indiana Disability Rights, we initially secured a preliminary injunction there, getting rid of that uh, traveling board system, which which the court recognized was uh, you know antiquated and uh, and frightening in terms of how it could possibly limit the the uh, privacy and, uh, and independence, but also the the opportunity to vote uh, for folks who are blind or low vision. And now we're in the midst of litigation. We have cross motions for summary judgment. We've also moved for a permanent injunction with the hopes that a system uh, an accessible uh, online absentee system can be in place uh, by the November election uh, in 2022 this year. We don't know uh, what's going to happen with that. We'll keep you posted. One of the benefits of having these other cases already litigated, particularly North Carolina, is that we're using some of the same materials, we're using the same experts, and hope to have that, that precedent in place. But one of the things that Indiana has made us realize is we thought, you know, initially with Pennsylvania, then some additional progress in New York, and then this kind of groundbreaking uh, order in North Carolina that, that, you know, the states would kind of fall like dominoes in terms of uh, accessible absentee voting. But that has not been the case. There have been some kind of progressive moves from states. There's a fantastic group of advocates working with Jeff, Tom, and others who are, who are considering legislation in California. But on the whole, it's been a very slow-moving process, and some of the momentum that uh, had kind of come out of the pandemic with the need, like a, almost a, a recognition that this is a problem, has slowed down a bit. And so we're, it, it keeps uh, us, you know, rem it reminds us we need to keep our foot on the gas on this, and we will continue to work with uh, ACB and its affiliates on this. We're also watching, and I'm sure some folks have uh, been kind of keeping tabs on this as well, there's a case that's kind of been kind of bouncing around in the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and there's some folks who are actually considering a federal action in that case uh, on similar issues. So we're going to we'll keep you posted on that as well. Uh, but it's just something that we, you know, it, the opportunity, it was just one of these silver linings of the, the pandemic. There was an opportunity there to actually increase the protections of the law. And we want to make sure that, that those protections uh, don't wane and actually increase uh, as, as, we, as more folks get used to living in this pandemic. So that's, I'll, I'll turn it over to Matt. I, I don't know if, there, if you guys want to uh, take questions now on the voting issues or if we want to take questions at the end, but I, I can turn it over to Matt. We'll just take like five or 10 minutes so, and then we'll turn it over to Matt. We have someone here in the room. I'm taking the mic to him. Here you go. Thank you. Good morning. I'll introduce myself. So my name is Jason Broughton, and I'm the director of the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. And my question comes from my continued contacts with state librarians, particularly out of Mississippi and Alabama. We create a reference guide generally to help people understand voting, but 
it ended up becoming an interesting conversation. And I just wanted your perspective, since we we're talking about voting, into what you think the landscape looks like with all the numerous changes due to uh, reallocation and reorganization of states due to census data that is still continuing to change in some states, how that is impacting where people need to understand the importance of these changes for 2022 and 2024. Because in Alabama and Mississippi, there are some interesting things. The state librarians kind of said was going on, but they were really concerned it would impact the visually impaired because things are just shifting. Your thoughts? Yeah, it's shift. It's been so dramatic and so rapid, and things are happening on a state level and a county level. And the, I mean, I don't have a, a magic bullet answer for you. The only thing I would say is because it's been shifting so rapidly and there have been changes both by states and by by counties. And this is you, you probably can tell from my discussion that this is happening piecemeal kind of state by state uh, or, or board of elections by board of elections. Uh, and there isn't as much uniformity as we'd like, uh, you know, and, and the, the Justice Department has well, they've kind of opined in some of these cases. They haven't taken on a very kind of clear cut guidance uh, kind of post-pandemic at this point. So the only thing I can say is that it's probably worth looking at what happens. Like, so for all the counties that are covered by the library system, what, what's happening in those counties? And if there's nothing that's clear on the website uh, to make sure that folks actually reach out to the, the registrar, the board of elections, and, and, you know, kind of get the instructions firsthand, because it is, there's not, there's not a real kind of national coherence on this. Uh, and as you, those issues you're talking about with the census data, we don't work on directly, but we know that they've been changing uh, pretty rapidly as well. So I would, I would speak with county and state officials and see if you can get it straight from the horse's mouth, because there isn't a very uniform plan nationally at this point. We have another question here in the room. Good morning. This is Mika Paikula in Massachusetts. And thanks for coming in today. Um, I had a question, you know, a lot of times when we're talking about advocacy, we don't hear a lot about sort of the tactics that the opposing parties are using. So I'm thinking in this case, uh, what you guys are talking about in Indiana, you know, are they kind of defending the way that they're doing it and sort of trying to argue that they don't need to make it accessible? And um, do you think it's is it going to be relatively straightforward to refute those uh, claims that they're making? And also, it, you know, it seems like I'm not sure with all of these types of hearings like that we can't watch them on YouTube. You know, I'd, I'd really like to kind of hear, you know, what some of these people are saying. But just any thoughts on that would be uh, interesting and appreciated. So on the, the first point, it used to be that the argument would be that we don't have to do this, that there's not, particularly on the, on the privacy and independence piece, that there's nothing requiring us to provide full privacy and independence. Since the, you know, the, the couple of cases I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the talk, since the Disabled in Action case and the, and the folks that the CCB case out, at, out in California, there hasn't been that much of a, of a kind of concerted effort to say we don't have to do this. The problem, though, is that that there are, this is happening in Indiana as well, there there are these messages coming and that you hear them at hearing as well from, the, you know, whether it's states, um, boards of elections, or even the counties saying, of course, we're going to do that. We, you know, that's that we, we value this level of access just as much as you do. Uh, we just don't have the resources to put it together in time for X election. And then that shifts for the next election. Uh, and so um, what we've had to do as advocates is really kind of get together with experts, look at what's been done nationally in other states and say, you know, it's a, it's a tough argument to make to say, well, we don't, we're not working directly in your system, but we know that it's been done in similar systems. Uh, and I think that's one of the, the values in North Carolina that we had where, you know, there was, there was already a, a uh, pretty um, active and in place accessible voting system. It just happened to be used for military voters and overseas voters. So it was harder for the state to say, well, we can't do this in time because the, you know, the system, a very parallel system uh, was already, uh, that was functional, was already in place. Uh, the, the, the other thing I'd say is it's, it's worth having experts uh, to, um, to kind of counter people who've worked in voting systems. That's the, you know, people have worked with uh, boards of elections and registrars 
because we have a hard time as even, you know, we're advocates, we have a hard time as, as saying like, you know, we've gotten in your system and we know this, you know, this is, it, it's actually, it's your bureaucracy that's a problem. We know it can be done. Uh, so we've had to look look to experts who've been able to say that. And thankfully, we'll, you know, we'll see how it happens, uh, what happens in Indiana. But thankfully, in, in a couple of our cases, the courts have been persuaded by those experts. And then to answer your your, your second question, I we are pushing to have these hearings be available, uh, uh, you know, via links. The the first couple hearings we had uh, on these issues, and and I don't know if Chris Bell is in the room, but I don't think we had full access to for for the general public. Uh, and I would I would like that. Uh, so that's that is something we're pushing for. It's it's much more common now than it was at the beginning of the pandemic. I think judges are recognizing that the public has a right to to these hearings. But a couple of them, we've received links for counsel and links for the clients and nobody else. So that, that's an ongoing issue. And I think that it's it's getting better. There are some courts that actually have YouTube links, at least to audio. Uh, that that are automatic, but it's not it's not across the board. That that is an issue we're working on. We do have one more question in the room, but how about we go to Zoom and see if there are some questions there? Yes, we have two. Uh, first up is Ted Chittenden. Go ahead. Thank you. This is actually more of a commentary than a question. Um, yes, there, uh, two days ago on NPR after the uh, last ruling of the U.S. Supreme Court, their reporter. Court reporter Nina Totenberg noted that the court had voted to next next year hear a, vo- a, a voting rights case that could completely eviscerate the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And what she said was, with, from everything that she's seen, that from the shadow doc- dockets, uh, the rulings and those that the that the court has handed down with no signature, um, is that the um, the court is looking at removing all federal involvement with voting and leaving it all to state legislatures. What that means going forward for us and is that we're going to have to be focused, um, assuming that assuming that they're going to vote vote the way they're predicting. We're going to have to be focused on the state legislatures and put a lot less focus on the federal. This is I, I, I have, we've been following that as well. There are two, and we agree. Uh, there are two things that we've noticed with this. This well, this this one hasn't been decided yet. With with the other, the most recent environmental decision that is that looks like it has it the op, you know, has not the opportunity, but the uh, the ability to weaken some regulatory enforcement as well. Uh, and so, what we've been researching is, you know, the, a lot of the work that gets done in the context of accessible voting is done under the ADA and Section 504. And what our our research is pointing to is to, you know, look looking how we can preserve precedent uh, that that does not involve the Voting Rights Act and relies less on the regulations and more on statutory uh, requirements and court decisions. But I don't. I don't want to sugarcoat it. There, we see things shifting in a very negative direction. You're exactly right, and uh, we're going to keep track of it. But um, you know, we're between that the, the decision on the regulations that just came down and this uh, upcoming voting decision, which we kind of have to just wait for. Um, there are, you know, there are threats, and there there is every reason to be advocating at the state level right now. Hey, next we have Tim Hill. Uh, yes, uh, my name is uh, Tim Hill, and I'm from the third world state of West Virginia. And uh, recently, I voted in the um, West Virginia primary, and I voted online. I I called uh, my county voters registration and asked to vote absentee. And then a little while later on, I received uh, a uh, email from the secretary. Terry State's office, and I clicked on that, and it the ballot popped up, and I was able to vote uh, online, and it was very easy, which is really amazing for a right-wing redneck Republican state like West Virginia. So I was going to say, you referred to West Virginia as a third-world state. On this issue, it's not. It well, is. It's yeah. one of the forerunners, and we've actually used some of the materials from the Secretary of State in West Virginia as a way. And I, and I hate. And I'm sorry for saying this, but if West Virginia can do it, you all in your states can do it too. Yeah. Right? I mean, so that that crazy. that is that has been a, a very. Uh, it's been a, a positive tool for us. Uh, I, again, and, and it, it's I, I use Indiana as, as an example. Um, 
it, some of these some of these states are just kind of they're 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 wedded to their bureaucracies. I think there there's some very kind of well-meaning folks that are in the Secretary of State's office there. It's just that they're kind of stuck in this morass. So we're we're actually having to rely on the courts. But I you're right that, that that's that's a good system and we've actually used that as an example. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna go we're gonna get over to Matt now so that we make sure to have plenty of time for questions for him as well. Hi. Um, hello, everyone. This is uh, Matt Handley. Um, and uh, I'm uh, I'm excited to talk a bit about the developments in ACB's advocacy around kiosk accessibility. Um, there's been a lot of action in that over the last um, 12 months. And ACB has really been at the spearhead of, of um, developing case law on uh, when and how kiosks need to be made accessible. And I think as, um, as many of us uh, know, kiosks are becoming very pervasive in almost all aspects of daily life at places of public accommodation, whether that be at hospitals or doctor's offices or restaurants or grocery stores <clears throat> or for government services. Um, often when you enter them now, the, the brick and mortar um, locations of these, you may first encounter some type of flat screened kiosk requiring you to use that to either check in or gain access to many of the services. Um, and, you know, increasingly the use of those kiosks are so that the, the uh, businesses that are using them do not have to have as many staff on hand um, to provide the services that the kiosk was previously providing. Um, ACB is a plaintiff in two uh, sort of um, what we think of as sort of bellwether cases in this regard against uh, Quest Diagnostics and against LabCorp, both of which um, together form uh, the majority of the uh, the majority of Americans who visit laboratory uh, phlebotomists visit one of those two companies, either LabCorp or Quest Diagnostics. Um, in order to get blood drawn and for testing for their uh, for their doctor or for other reasons, um, and both have introduced in recent years these uh, e check in kiosks. And um, even though at first their their primary purpose was just for you to check in and, and register your appearance um, at the at these locations, they have since now gone on to include a host of other um, of other services, um, including things like allowing you to alert the, the, the back of the room that you would like to wait outside rather than, rather than in the busy waiting room, particularly during the pandemic, and then get a text alert when your appointment's ready. Um, also, you know, checking your billing history and, and scheduling your next appointment even. And increasingly, the, both, both companies have, have um, eliminated thousands of front of staff front of house employees as as a result um acb along with a uh, putative class of individuals has brought claims under um, primarily under title three of the ada uh, claiming that these inaccessible kiosks deny uh blind customers of quest and and lab full and equal enjoyment of the of the services there at at those at those companies, and as many of you know, in order to one of the ways that a business is required to uh, for, to ensure full and equal enjoyment is to make sure that um, that they've provided sufficient auxiliary aids and services so as to make the um, so as to ensure that there's effective communication of the availability of the services and how to access them. And the, the theory of the theory of the case of these two cases that ACB has brought, which are pending in federal court in Los Angeles, is that these kiosks, because they lack tactile keyboards, because they lack audio output, because they lack screen reader, any sort of screen reader technology or any sort of headphone jack that would allow one private use of it, um, that they they do not effectively communicate with uh, with Blind Quest and LabCorp customers. Um, the, a lot of these, in the, these cases, I, I won't get into too much detail about some of the, the intricacies of, of 
of the procedural motions that are at play here because it, it it's become quite dense, particularly in recent uh, months. But both cases have now been certified as uh, as nationwide class actions under the ADA, meaning that um, to the extent that we prevail at trial uh, on, on, on these matters, the, the, the injunction that will result from it will apply to LabCorp and Quest locations across the country. Um, and the, uh, in the LabCorp matter, the judge there has actually also certified a California class, a damages class, meaning that um, because California state law offers a minimum statutory damage um, uh, amount for um, for victims of of uh, under the Unruh Act, who which more or less mirrors the the ADA for violation purposes, that so the court has certified a damages class there, which would entitle if we prevail all California um, patients of LabCorp um, who are blind or visually impaired. Um, to get access to that uh, to those statutory damages, um, the um, the the facts of the case are really going to hinge on whether or not there was some type of alternative communication that was being given to try to uh, give access to these services to uh, to Quest and LabCorp patients who are blind. Quest has taken the position that. The kiosk is not the only way that you have to interact with um, with Quest services. That there are phlebotomists who, from time to time, poke their head out and uh, scan the room and look to see if anyone needs help. Um, the facts that have come out in discovery suggest that that is, uh, to be frank, nonsense. And at least in the in the Quest case, the court has already seemed to have. Um, made note of that in denying Quest's motion for summary judgment. Um, but we still will, at, at, presuming that this case goes to trial, which is scheduled for the beginning of November this year, um, we'll have to, to, to prove that they are not providing any type of alternative um, uh, methods of communication that are effective. That, in, in a sense, is what there, there is a, another case that many of you may have heard about that was against Walmart. Um, that ACB was not involved in, in Maryland, um, Walmart was another company that had adopted uh, checkout kiosks at its, uh, or, or self-service checkout at, at its uh, checkout locations that was not accessible. And a lot of that case did hinge on the fact that there the court found that um, there was always, or at least nearly always, some type of staff member who was close and near at hand to assist, and that that was sufficient to, to mean that Walmart had effectively communicated with its customers. I think these um, healthcare-related kiosk cases are a much different matter, and I think the courts are seeing that. Number one, the business model appears to be, let's get rid of staff. We, don't, we, we, we want the kiosk to be the, the, the sole way that people are checking in. And number two, there are sufficient, very significant privacy concerns at issue here. They don't necessarily occur in a retail environment. Um, many of the many of the ACB members who have been um, deposed in in these cases, which um, I have to commend all of all of ACB's members who have stepped forward to assist with this. And there is a lot of you. Um, I think somewhere in the order of two dozen of you have been deposed in one of or in both of those cases. Um, many of you have had to rely on patients in the waiting room to to check you in. In order to make use of the of the kiosk, to, so to provide them personal uh, a third party that you a complete stranger that you don't know personal information in order to check in, and so you know, we're feeling pretty bullish about where the, these two cases are headed. Um, they are right now. Um, there's a lot of activity in the appellate courts right now because after the certification of these classes, um, defendants have a right to then ask the appellate court immediately to rethink that. And both Quest and LabCorp have now done that. And so we're in the in the midst of trying to convince the appellate courts that the lower courts got this correct. Um, but I think again, we still feel um, feel quite strongly that we'll that we should be able to prevail in that. Um, I think um, for purposes of time, I'll go ahead and 
and stop there. Happy to answer questions on the developments there, or we can move on to Stuart's next topic. So this is Stuart. I, I again can't see questions. I could go ahead and start. Yeah, I Are can't there any either. questions in the room? Anyone raising their hands? There is some. There is one question here in the room. Uh, Matt, I'm a little bit hard-pressed to understand why companies like Quest or LabCorp uh, would spend the, the time and money and the possible PR loss uh, in uh, defending these suits so vigorously. It seems to me that the, the cost of making these machines accessible, given that the technology does exist, would be less than the legal cost of defending them, let alone the cost of actually providing personnel to make the experience actually equal. No, you're, that's a it's a very good point, and I had meant to to raise that too. I mean, we 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 are also a bit perplexed by that. I mean, the the fix here is not rocket science. Um, both of these companies use uh, basically an iPad technology for this kiosk, so it already has um, accessibility features built into built into the hardware, including headphone jacks, for that matter. Um, installation of a tactile keyboard and making use of the audio output would would um, you know we we've shown would have very marginally increased the cost and the savings that they've made on this is in the tens of millions of dollars over the last several years based on the labor costs and the efficiencies that they've been able to um, achieve. It, it's so we're the I don't I don't know what their resistance is um, other than they um, I think there's some there's some fear on their part that, that the, uh, um, that it will, uh, still result in frustrations. Um, apparently one of the things that has come out of this is that it's, I mean, the blind and visually impaired are not the only communities that don't like these kiosks. The, the, uh, a lot of, um, that we've, you know, we've seen a lot of the, the feedback that has been given to Quest and LabCorp over the years and, and most people would prefer that they not be there. Um, and so I think there's some concern that it would, that maybe it would make them even clunkier and result in even more customer dissatisfaction. Okay. Um, you want to check for any Zoom questions? Good morning. This is Dora Martinez from the beautiful state of Nevada. Good morning from Lake Tahoe to you all. Um, I just have a, a, um, a here in Nevada, um, the ACB, I'm a newly board member here in Nevada, and the ACB, we're working really close with one of our legislatures. So they passed the, um, similar to uniformed and overseas um, citizen absentee voting act. So, you know, people with disability are able to vote like we did this past primary. So I want to thank ACB for um, guiding me to pass that. And it's always important to kind of... Um, What's the word? Um, get a good release. Sorry, I've been only speaking English for 14 years. So I'm, I'm kind of nervous and I'm, I'm rushing because I know it's a lot of people, um, talking. So I uh, want to hear all the important people. Um, so, so it's really important to, um, establish a good relationship with the legislatures. And that's what we're trying to do here. So my next question is just to see if there's a, um, like a model bill for teachers for visually impaired students because here in Nevada, when um, K-12 graduate the student, you know, let's say they're visually impaired, low vision or totally blind, and they go to college, they have no idea on how to navigate JAWS and VDA and even MacBook to, to get their, um, you know, uh, assignment. So I was wondering if there's a bill that maybe we could, we could start doing that um, here in Nevada. Thank you so much for your valuable time. Just to, to go to the, the kind of the bill process. First of that, so congratulations on that bill in Nevada. We have seen a couple states move uh, in the direction of legislating uh, accessible voting, and that's fantastic. And as I mentioned, that Jeff, Tom, and others uh, are working with Disability Rights California. Hopefully that'll be, that'll happen in California as well. On education, I, I don't have a model bill in mind. There's some good settlements uh, involving higher education that have a guide for the kinds of things that uh, university systems should make accessible and the ways they should do it. 
But I would actually encourage, encourage you to reach out to the legislative unit at Disability Rights California. And if you, um, I noticed my name is spelled wrong on the Zoom, but if, you, if I, some, I can try and get my contact information to the, um, the folks at ACB and I can put you in touch with them because they have for a couple of years now, I don't know if the bills, I don't think the bills have passed, but they've been working on legis uh, legislation to include accessibility requirements for uh, both uh, places of public accommodation, but also uh, state funded services. And they may have models for what bill language looks like. Uh, and that, you know, their, their bills would likely apply to uh, you know, public universities, but also private through the, the, the public accommodation requirements. So I, I would encourage you to, to reach out to them. We don't do the legislative side ourselves. We often work with advocates in, in, in different states to do that. And uh, I just want to echo the comment. I think it was Tim <clears throat> mentioned that state advocacy is going to become much more important uh, depending on what happens with these Supreme Court cases. So we, we commend you all for doing it. Uh, and I would, I guess I would encourage, uh, for that particular question, I would encourage you to work or to reach out to Disability Rights California, uh, which is just across the state from you all. I think one of their legislative people is actually in South Lake Tahoe, uh, <clears throat> their, the, but their legislative office is in Sacramento uh, to see if they have ex uh, examples of bill language on those issues. And Doris, I can, I'll get your information. I'm having to be on Disability Rights California's board, so I'll get to you and we can work we're, we can talk from there. Thank you. Do we have any other Zoom questions or, or in the room? Yes, Jeff. It's Alice Richard. And I want to go back to the kiosks. And I want to go back to we're doing with Quest and, and Lab. But what about the actual doctor's offices? And, and I'm talking about big corp. Like I came out of the hospital from COVID, went to my cardiologist to find out that they'd gone to a kiosk system because they hooked up with St. Vincent's. And I found out that it wasn't just the St. Vincent's in Jacksonville, Florida, but it's a national conglomerate, um, even in Indiana. And these kiosks are totally inaccessible. They um, not only do you do like what you said when you go and you have to have somebody help you to, to register you, but they want you to do everything, schedule your appointments on them. They want you to um, anything that needs to be done with this office has to be done. And when you try to call to speak to somebody about the issue that they're not accessible, you can't even speak to a live person. So I'm just wondering what will the effect of this lawsuit have on them or what can we do? Because this is disconcerting because I've told my cardiologist at this point, I've been with him 25 years, but if I can't access him, I may have to find somebody else. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that, I mean, hopefully the impact of the lawsuit will itself will, will prompt um, other kiosk users to, uh, to make them accessible. But I mean, absent that, and even in advance of that, and the facts you described to me seem, you know, as compelling, if not more so, than what we're doing with Quest and LabCorp, and and it may warrant enforcement on them sooner rather than later. I mean, I, I, I the the um, this is, I think, kiosk litigation is, and and threat kiosk threat of litigation in order to try to make sure that that um, providers are are providing accessible kiosks is only going to increase in the very near term. And that what you've described to me sounds very ripe for, for, for enforcement. Robert Acosta here. I want to, I'll be brief. I promise. Um, outstanding presentations. This is just a great program. My question is, are either of you, are either of you familiar with Robles versus Domino's? My question is they settled but they won't talk about it. Is it. When does the public get to know this? A public interest case. Will we ever get to know the results of that case with Domino's? Thank you. Uh, that's, that's a great question. This is Stuart. I can, I can start. And then Matt, if you have other thoughts on Domino's. So I don't know, with respect to Domino's as a chain and a company itself, I don't know the answer to that question. With respect to the impact of Robles versus Domino's nationally on the industry and other industries and uh, all places of public accommodation throughout the country, uh, 
we do know the, the impact already. And that is uh, because the Justice Department has been very slow to implement, uh, you know, promulgate and implement regulations on access to online business and services. There's, you know, you all probably know there's been this gap in 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 standards out there, and the impact of the Domino's case is, it, you know, the court's basically saying it doesn't really matter yet that there is a as this gap in standards, and we don't we don't have to wait for the Justice Department to make a determination in terms of what level of access is required, you know, whether it's WCAG 2.0 or, or, or AA or, or, or whatever. Uh, there, we can look to the accessibility requirements of the ADA generally. So as Matt was describing, the, for Title III entities, the full and equal access, that still applies. And how you determine what level of access or how you measure full and equal access, you can look to what's available in the industry and uh, with accessibility, uh, with folks with accessibility expertise. And that uh, advocates like ourselves have now used to push companies to at least comply with the WCAG standards, uh, pointing to Domino's and saying, you know, we're not, you know, companies, you shouldn't have to wait around for these regulations. There is there's at least something you can look to now. We, of course, would like there to be regulations. We'd like there to be uniformity and some sort of standard we could take to companies and say, look, you know, here it is. You should do it or or else. Uh, but there isn't that yet. And I don't, you know, I don't know. This administration has 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 given us hints that it's going to do something. Uh, but I don't, you know, I'm not going to hold my breath yet. Uh, and, but, the, but the import of Domino's is we don't necessarily have to wait for that. We, you know, we can push companies to provide access to work with, uh, folks in the community to ensure that there's there's usability. I think that's the other thing that uh, if we look at industry standards, there's a real push uh, that we can make to say not not only do you have to make things you know accessible from an automated point of view, but you actually you need to do usability testing uh, with folks in the blind community because it actually has to work. We've seen plenty of examples and working we've been working with the California uh, affiliate, the CCB. For a couple of years now, uh, on on one case in particular, I can think of where the you know the, the automated testing was done by a company paid a lot of money uh, that did not incorporate uh, actual users, uh, you know, users from the blind community uh, to to uh, pretty horrific results. So we can we can use all of those things now from Domino's. Um, but can I answer the question about the 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 Domino's company itself? No. So I'm going to throw out a, a little different area of advocacy, and that is. Um, leading pedestrian interval signals is if you don't know what they are, they're, they're so-called countdown signals, which go on for a certain number of seconds before the actual pedestrian signal goes on. So that the problem for a blind person is if there's no accessible pedestrian signal, we lose those extra seconds before we know to walk. And by that time, of course, and drivers may think, well, everybody that's going to go is going to go, and we haven't, and so it's it's a it's a double whammy conceivably. So there have been a couple of cases I know in New York and Chicago where the issue has been brought up to try and you know require accessible pedestrian signals to be installed where uh, wherever there is a countdown signal. Is this an area where you expect more litigation, or what can, can you? Your thoughts on that, uh, Stuart or, or, or Matt, either one of you? So, this is Stuart. I, I actually, I, I was hoping to get a chance to talk about that. And if, if you all have a couple of minutes, I can, I can share what, what I was going to say. So we, we are, we, we refer, I hope it's okay if I use the acronym LPI for leading uh, pedestrian intervals. We, we use that quite frequently. Uh, if, I, if I get caught up in acronyms, please stop me. Uh, but I did want to mention a couple of the uh, the APS or, you know, in some states, they call them accessible pedestrian signals. In some states, they call them audible pedestrian signals. Uh, but the APS cases, uh, in part because of this, this uh, LPI issue is be- being brought to the forefront right now. Uh, so the, the, the first case, and, and you mentioned this, is that the case in New York City, this is a case that we, uh, you know, working with folks at a- ACB and, and other advocates, uh, had realized this is actually you know, at this point several years ago that um, you know New York had done a lot of construction um, without installing APS. At the time we filed the complaint, there was less than five percent 
of signalized intersections. So this is not just intersections. This is intersections where the the city has determined there's a need for a signal because there's a safety issue. Uh, so less than five percent of those intersections had APS. And the judge was actually persuaded by that and said, you know, back in this was in September of 2020, he's he our judge ruled that 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 on its own was a violation of the meaningful access or the program access requirement that the the, the pedestrian uh, routes or the pedestrian right of way was a program of the city of New York and this and the city wasn't providing meaningful access. Uh, we often use full and equal access. The the Second Circuit uses the term meaningful access. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't providing meaningful access to blind pedestrians with that that woeful level of installation of APS. Uh, and we they sent us to work with the city and a couple of experts and 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 the, the ACB folks and advocacy groups on a remedy. And it was actually a pretty big battle. Uh, we didn't we we spent over a year in negotiations. We actually had to go to the court on a couple of the issues before the court issued a remedy order. And there's a lot of pushback uh, on the kind of construction costs uh, 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 that have to do with APS and the timing. And uh, the other issue that that comes up is what what level of of access is is required for for full and equal access or meaningful access. We had argued and at one point got the city to uh, agree to 100% of signalized intersections and the court left that up in the air. The court basically told the city of New York, you can install 10,000 in the next uh, 10 years, and then we'll revisit. If you can think of uh, a way to demonstrate, or if you can demonstrate that you're providing access without 100% accessibility, uh, you know, you, you, we're going to give you that opportunity, but the burden's on you. So at least the burden has been placed on the city, uh, but we're a little disappointed it wasn't 100% access. And then the other issue that that has been up in the air is what constitutes, so uh, apart from this kind of access, you know, kind of program accessibility requirements to the pedestrian routes, what happens when the when the city uh, does something like installing these leading pedestrian intervals or, or LPI? And the court didn't really address that uh, head on in New York City. Uh, we're, we were, we're kind of okay with that because it looks like we're going to get where there is LPI, we're going to get an APS, we're going to get some sort of accessible pedestrian signal anyway, because there's this remedial plan. But it is probably going to come front and center in the Chicago case, uh, which is going to summary judgment in late August. So I, I would say stay tuned. And the question really is like when, when a, uh, a city or a county or a state, you know, whatever Department of Transportation installs these leading pedestrian intervals, does that count as an alteration that triggers the accessibility requirement? We are making the argument that it does. And so, so the, in terms of the question, you know, when, when, cause I, we, we've heard from a, a lot of advocates, some, a lot of, a lot of folks at ACB and other, other advocates that it really, it, it messes up somebody's orientational mobility when that, when those are installed. And so that not only is it should be a, a triggering alteration, but it actually, it creates a barrier to access that didn't exist before is essentially even worse. And so that I, I just will, will answer the question with that is coming to a head in Chicago. Chicago is a, a good place to litigate because their situation, they've got even, even less installed in terms of APS than New York City. They're, I think they're below 5% at this point. We also have the Justice Department that has intervened on our behalf and on behalf of the, of the blind community. Uh, so it, it, it bodes well. They're the same experts that had worked on the, the, their two cases in New York State uh, one is our case in New York City. There's another case as well. So all of them are involved, and we think you know this is a, a good chance to make good law. But it's that that just to answer that question. That's up in the air as we speak. Uh, and I would stay tuned in Chicago. We are working on a case, an investigation in, in Seattle uh, now in terms with blind advocates. And I would I would say I would encourage you if there's some you know large municipalities that you're aware of that uh, are not. Uh, you know their 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 level of APS um, installation is, is still pretty woeful or, or pretty bad. I would encourage you to reach out to us. And the other thing is, if there are you know if, you, if you're seeing rapid uh, installation of leading pedestrian intervals without APS, please let us know because that I think is an issue we want to bring to a head as well. I don't have a definitive answer on what the court you know will do, uh, but to say stay tuned because uh, this issue is probably going to be decided in Seattle. Okay. Do we have any more questions over Zoom? I'm okay. going to go to Peter. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you, uh, panel, for a great presentation. I want to make this more general, if you don't mind. Um, 
I have the sense that many disability organizations, we think that we're in the 1990s. And I think we're in a very different political situation in the 1990s. I think if the if the ADA were under consideration now, it would, it would not pass. And how does that impact the way we think about advocating, um, both from a legal perspective, and then if anybody has any other thoughts in the, sort of the, for us non-lawyer types, what should we be? I, we've already talked about focusing more on the states. And I think that's that's a, 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 an obvious and a good one. But what other things should we be thinking about changing the way we do business in, in, in this whole sort of advocacy arena? Um, well, actually, I'll start. The, this is Matt. I, I, um, I mean, sort of two kind of unrelated thoughts I have on on, on your question comment. The the um, the uh, uh, first is that I, although I you, you may be right that given the political climate today, it's not the same as it was in the '90s when the ADA passed. I will I will say that you know there have been even at the federal level. Um, advances in uh, disability rights law that impact the blind and visually impaired community, though, that have been passed even in the last decade or near to near decade. I mean, the one of the areas that we've been doing a lot of work with ACB on over the particularly over the last six years has been under the Communications um, and Video Accessibility Act. Uh, which is certainly doesn't have as much teeth to it perhaps as, as the ADA, but it's, it's one of the things we've been using to ensure that emerging technologies that um, involve advanced communication systems, whether it be email or texting or uh, interoperable video conferencing systems and, um, and the like are accessible. It has a enforcement mechanism that we go through the FCC with and the, and ACB has had, a lot has made a lot of good strides in that, whether we're talking about the accessibility of VoIP phones or smartwatches or even the, the, um, uh, some of the bulk email systems that um, are used. For instance, ACB uses Constant Contact as its, uh, as its email platform that it sends out um, its newsletters on. And it's only through ACB's advocacy under the, under the CVAA that it's, <laughs> that it's become actually fully accessible. Um, and so I, I, I guess maybe I'm not as, I, and maybe things are even worse now over the last three, four years okay. on, on that front than they were a decade ago when the CBAA passed. But I, I don't think it's hopefully quite as dire as it could be. Um, but then the other thing I would say too is that we do, as much as, um, as, much as I don't want to be picky or about the types of matters that we bring for enforcement. One of the things that uh, we in the, in the legal advocacy realm uh, have to deal with are the fact that there are, I think without, I, I, I don't think we can ignore the fact that there are a lot of, um, I'll say opportunistic attorneys out there that are bringing cases that are causing some of the courts to become jaded to some of the, the, uh, the actions that we that we take, um, and so I think trying to make sure that we separate ourselves from uh, you know from those uh, those cases that um, you know don't have as much that that are not as impactful and are being done solely for pecuniary gain, um, I think is the messaging on that and the PR around that is something also that we need to focus on so that the rest of the the rest of our communities don't, um, you know, don't look at don't look at what we're doing askance. So this is Stuart. I just wanted to piggyback on that because that that is something that we think about on a daily basis, and it does. I mean, we we use the term in our office to be more targeted with the advocacy, so that it's you know we we're not that that this community is not lumped in with some of this this you know kind of opportunistic litigation. And I mean, some of the cases we've talked about today, you know, the, the key, there, there's a lot of access to technology litigation all over the country, but focusing on things like access to healthcare, access to voting, things that are very compelling and where, where the human side is, is, is something that almost everybody can relate to. I think, you know, we, I'm having the discussion, even, even back in the, um, with the, with the California Council of the Blind Folks in the Alameda County voting case, some of the, some of the people, even in the registrar's office, 
on the other side were surprised that the private and independent vote didn't like the, the secret ballot, everybody, you know, all the cited folks had taken for granted for hundreds of years hadn't existed in the blind community. And so having having a real focus on the, the kind of compelling nature of the issues and the, you know, the kind of human side of the work is, has has gone a long, a long way. The other thing I, I just wanted to mention is that there probably is room. I, I, I completely agree, particularly with the Supreme Court and some of, of Congress, we're in a tough place. But there probably is room on particular issues for growth in access. And I do think there is some appetite for access to technology being improved as, you know, as technology improves, the level of access should improve with it. Okay. And if there, if there can be a case made that there, you know, there's a cost to leaving, the, you know, whole communities behind when access to technology improves, I, I think that that is compelling. And we are seeing judges who are, you know, more amenable to that. And, you know, I, I think I can't, I can't predict what the administration will do on that, but th- that is something it seems, you know, it, in a way it seems less controversial uh, and it, you know, something where there's still room for growth. So uh, other than the the focus on the states, particularly in things like voting, we talked about before, I think focusing on targeted issues and, you know, access to critical services like healthcare or fundamental rights like voting or things like education, all very relevant and compelling, but also there, there could be still an open door and access to technology. Thank you. So we got just a few minutes left. So let's try to keep our questions quick and get, get see if we can get through them. Okay, next, next is Larry. Thank you very much. Uh, I have a comment and then a question for you all. Uh, uh, I'm in San Antonio, Texas. We're very fortunate that we have over 100 uh, active um, audible pedestrian signals, and uh, the city continues to add them every year. Uh, the, uh, the issue that seems to be uh, related to that is being able to adjust the uh, the interval or the time for uh, walking across very large avenues. And so we're kind of struggling with them on how to be able to adjust the signals to conform to that. But my real question has to do with uh, accessible voting. Uh, we've got a really interesting situation in Texas. Uh, we have a suit filed against uh, the county of Bayer uh, for not providing uh, accessible voting for absentee voters, even though military people or stationed overseas are able to do that. And the, uh, the Secretary of State says that uh, the individual election officials in each county uh, can accommodate voters. But by the same token, they also say that there's a state law that says that uh, there can be no accommodation. And so right now, the uh, uh, the lawsuit is in, at the lower court level. The judge hasn't made his decision yet. But the concern is that if he does uh, uphold it, then the county election manager is uh, subject to penalties for violating the state law. Do you know anything similar to this in any other state? So Anybody this is, got a one minute answer Stuart. so we can we, get on We have this. had Good similar, question, Larry. Sorry, this is Stuart. We have had similar issues arise in other states. And I, I, you know, I would say in this situation, it depends a little bit on the judge. The federal ADA, right, as you know, uh, is will preempt state law in most cases. We have had some federal judges say, "Well, it's you know, it's not actually a conflict, and uh, it, it becomes a, a kind of a tough path to navigate." Um, I would be willing to speak to your counsel on that. I, I you know, I, I couldn't advise uh, the, the 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 plaintiffs directly if they're already represented. But we've had we've had this has come up a couple of times for us. It came up for us in Indiana, uh, and it's something you know in terms of where where the state law essentially trumps the um the the access issue and or where and where it doesn't and uh i would be happy to, to to talk to the attorneys on the on that case um and share everything that we know uh it's it's a difficult situation i do think there's a good argument that um you know you can you can uh you know if there's a legitimate state interest you can comply with that state interest and still provide access 
I also think if the county is, or if the state is in, in on one, one hand is punting to the county for their responsibility, if you have both the state and the county in the litigation, it becomes much easier for them to, you know, they can't point the finger at each other. Uh, but apart from that, I, I, I can't really fo- answer without more specific facts. And I could, I'd say I'd, I'd be happy to speak to whoever the counsel is, whoever the attorney is bringing that case. It has come up for us several times. We've been fortunate enough to kind of get past those issues where there's kind of a state law hurdle being thrown at us. Um, but a lot of it depends on the judge. Larry, I'll connect the two of you when I get home. And if I don't, you'll remind me. I also just wanted to mention there was a question that came in when we were setting up this this panel about uh, consolidating arbitrations. Uh, There was the wonderful case that Lisa Irving brought via arbitration against Uber, where there was a seven-figure, I think it was $1.1 million award. And uh, we have been for a, a couple of years now been looking at at the possibility of consolidating claims. You know, our our settlement agreement with Uber and Lyft expired, and the court uh, in the Uber case said, "Well, it's not really enough to keep it going. You need to look at other avenues." And we are looking at at uh, avenues that, that that involve arbitration. What I would suggest, you know, certainly people can contact me offline about it, um, but you would need a, a significant number of people willing to move forward and participate in arbitration, probably at least 20 or so, uh, to have that kind of an impact. Uh, there have been, particularly uh, in other civil rights areas and employment, there have been consolidated arbitrations. The American Arbitration Association doesn't bar them at all. In fact, they leave that to the discretion of the individual arbitrator. Uh, and I think there's, there's no pun intended, there's a vehicle for that here in the context of these ride-sharing cases, but you would need a lot of folks interested. And, and for us, from a resources perspective, we would need, uh, we need to coordinate uh, probably with multiple counsel, but it's not something we would discard. And I would say for those who are interested in that, uh, to please contact us offline. I, I, I did not get to answer that question in our presentation, but I, I remember it and just wanted to, to mention that and folks can contact us offline. Thank you. I think we have time for one more quick question. Hi, this is Kitty. And getting back to the issues with the accessible kiosks um, or chaos, I I have had issues with the Social Security kiosks here in Cincinnati. And I know it's a federal versus a uh, business, but is anything being done to address the the ones with social security yeah no there absolutely there has been um and particularly i know the ones in the at social security headquarters i i thought that it had percolated out to some of the branches i Stuart, i'm not sure if you you're if you're more familiar with that yeah there was a case and i don't i and i have to admit i don't know if it's still where, where it is if it's still if there's an still anything enforceable or not um, but there has the, the Disability Rights Education Defense Fund um, had brought uh, a case involving all kinds of accessible technology, including access to kiosks. I, I, if you, if you, I can look it up uh, and I can put you in touch with them. Um, my, you know, those there, those are uh, federal agencies, obviously recipient of federal funds. They should be accessible. Um, I. I don't know. Again, I don't know what the status of their their case and and if their agreements are in force or not. Uh, but I'd be happy to look it up and put you in touch with them. Um, let's give a round of applause for our great presenters, Matt Hanley and Stuart Seaborn. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Okay, thank you very much, everyone, for coming, and I hope you enjoyed the presentation. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you.